Well, it's an honor to be here this morning, to say the least. Um, as Kent had said, we've known each other for about three decades or longer, possibly, and uh, many of you that I also am familiar with, and uh, seeing what God has done with this church, my, my mental image this morning as I was coming here was in the theater, and so uh, as Tim uh, was doing security work up front, he directed me to, to go this way. And so um, I came in here and I said, wow, this has really changed. This has grown a lot. And so God has got his hand on this church and the leadership here and every man, woman, and child that's in, in these seats here for a phenomenal work of what he's doing in our community. And so uh, uh, today I'm going to give kind of an info message. Uh, it's going to be talking about the rescue mission, and there's a lot to share here uh, this morning. Uh, probably too much, but I'm going to go fast. A lot of it's going to be up here, so don't look at me. Look up here until the electricity goes off, then you can look at me in the dark. So, uh, but uh, I do want to start out with a passage of Scripture uh, in Matthew 14, 16. Uh, this is the feeding of the 5,000 that uh, we uh, all know very, very well in regards to uh, what that story is all about. Um, in chapter uh, 14, and verse 14, reading out of the book of Matthew, uh, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. We're out here in the boondocks. We're kind of alone. They were beginning to express their fears. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food so that they can eat. And Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only here five loaves of bread and two fish, he answered. He said, bring them to me. And they took them and blessed them and gave them back to the disciples and said, now go feed them. What we find in life is that we are faced with natural problems that require supernatural solutions. These disciples were facing an issue here, and I'm going to read into this a little bit, in that they were concerned about this 5,000 plus women and children crowd out here, how they were going to get hungry, and what kind of crowd control issues they might face, and how problematic that could be for them. They were probably thinking about themselves more than they were thinking about the folks out there. And so they went to Jesus and they said, with a natural problem, we need to get rid of these folks quickly because we're going to have an issue here. And so Jesus said, just go feed them. And I'm sure, and this is reading into it a little bit, I'm sure that, that as uh, they heard Jesus said, go feed them, they were thinking, how do we convince him to quit talking, <laughs> quit healing the sick and having compassion on the poor? We've got to get home, it's late. Natural issue, natural problem. And so he said, go feed them. And so they went around, they gathered up these loaves and fish, and they came back to him, not to say, oh, wow, look what we got. It was more of a protest. This is all we got. Jesus, this is all we got. A natural problem. We can't feed all these people with this. And so Jesus said, give it to me. He took it, he blessed it, and he gave it back to them. And I'm sure for a moment, at least one of them, if not 12 of them, were saying, wow, that's off our hands. He got the message now. He's going to go and tell those folks, Oh, it's late. Go home. He's been evidenced that this is our problem. You know, we go to God a lot of times and we say, God, this, we can't do this. This is not enough. We don't have enough. This is too big. This is too massive. We cannot accomplish this. 
And what does the Lord say? Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Give me your burdens and I will take them. And I'm sure that they were glad to give their burden to Jesus at that point and thinking he politically, from a communication standpoint, he's going to communicate what they wanted him to communicate, but he didn't. He said, now go feed them. They had a crucial decision to make at that point. Are we going to trust him that he knows more than we know? Are we going to believe him that his assignment for us is something that will work? Or are we going to rely upon the natural problem that we have right here and we're going to walk away? And how many times in our lives does Jesus say to do something and we say that's impossible and so we walk away? We walk away. But they made the right decision. They said, in spite of what we can't see, in spite of what we can see, in spite of the magnitude of this problem, probably about 10,000 people out there and just a few fish and a few loaves, Jesus handed it back to them and by faith they stepped out and did the impossible. And what's the Bible say? Afterwards, there were 12 baskets full left over. Everybody got fed, and a major miracle happened. I want to say to you today, at the rescue mission, which has been in existence for 61 years, that it has been a faith walk that God has supplied, and I'm going to show you about that supply here today. I'm going to talk to you about what He's doing and what He's calling us to do next. And I hope if anything happens here today that you understand that God is in the business of doing miracles in your personal life, in the life of this church, in the life of this city, in the life of our homeless shelter here, and in this whole world, but we're going to face natural problems requiring a supernatural solution, and we're not going to just give it to God, and He's going to take care of everything, and He's going to walk away, or we're going to walk away, and it's going to be okay, because what He's going to do is He's going to say, go do this. We're going to say, that's not possible. He's going to say, give it to me. We're going to give it back to Him, and then He's going to give it right back to us. We fed 538,000 meals last year at the rescue mission. If we spent $3 on a meal, that would have cost us $1.6 million. Instead, we only spent $50,000 on food. How is that possible? Because people gave us food. Now, I want to say God touched their hearts. He touched your heart. And all this food came in. We began to feed hungry mouths. We've been doing this for years. But I noticed God never opened a can of green beans. <laughs> he never cooked anything on the stove. He never dipped the mashed potatoes out on a plate, and I know he never washed a dish. But he told us to do it. He told us to go and believe him and trust him, and he blessed. And so he said, go and do. So Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. God is calling us to do something. Can't ask for a title on this today. And so I chose to call this the longest war in American history. Does anybody know what the longest war in American history possibly is? There's been a lot of wars that we've been involved in. Uh, a couple of the ones that we can think of is Vietnam. 103 months. Started August 7th, 1963. Until recently, we surpassed that with the war in Afghanistan, 107 months. So these have been the longest wars. Not World War II, not World War I, but these have been the longest wars that we have had thus far. But there's one that's even longer than this one. And you may have guessed it. Declared January 8th, 1964, 50 years ago this year. 50 years ago in January, the longest declared war in history. The war on poverty. 605 months. Six times as long as any other war. Now, you'll say, well, that wasn't a war. Well, yes, it was. Because the war on poverty was declared by this guy, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, the United States President and Congress, that said we're going to go out and we're going to fight this war. And we're going to win this war. He had a great idea that we're going to eliminate poverty. 
And poverty was extremely entrenched back in those days. And a lot of things came out prior to that time with the Roosevelt administration, with the New Deal, and then Johnson taking this. One of the problems is, that was January the 8th. Later on that summer, Vietnam would occur. And so there was a collision of interest and decisions of where things were going to go and resources were going to go. And so Johnson was trying to fight two major wars. He was personally involved in this. As I say, he had a great idea. A lot of a lot of us today would be very critical of him. Uh, there's a lot to be critical with, but he cast a great idea to be able to eliminate poverty in the United States. Eventually, there would be a lot of, that says, a whirlwind president. We would see him to be chastised, criticized for many, many, many failures. And today we look back and look at Ronald Reagan when he said famously, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. Why was he able to say that? This came out of a magazine here. Poverty won in part because instead of helping the poor... Government programs ruptured the bonds holding poor families together. We all probably are fairly familiar with that. The enabling, the dismantling of the family, giving away things, just dressing issues in a very, very chaotic manner. Sometimes we would see these kind of things over the last 50 years. Liquor stores saying we accept food stamps. Um, Put in the right areas of community. I could go on with those. War on poverty results. In the last 50 years, here's what we got. $15 trillion spent so far on this war. Estimated 70% of that $15 trillion has been spent on program administration. In other words, only 30% actually reached the poor. And then, what do we have today? As of the beginning of this year, 10.5 million more impoverished people than there were in 1964. Not a good report, but yet the war rages on. In America, we see large food lines, we see ghettos, we see people who are entrapped in poverty, don't know any way out of it. Uh, They've been like this all their lives. I'm working now with the fourth generation of people who don't know any different. This is what they were raised in, and this is what they expect, and they don't know anything different. What went wrong? What went wrong with this? Was it not a good idea to eliminate poverty? Yes, you can say the scripture says the poor will all be with you. Yes, it says that. But was it a bad idea to eliminate poverty? No, it was a great idea. But they went about it wrong. With the attempted primary reason to to focus on this was to solve the physical needs of the poor. Being involved in the rescue mission now for nearly three decades myself, I've been watching poverty programs that have been uh, coming and going, and we continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. Today, The congressional officials and people in our country are lobbying. All we have to do to solve homelessness is give people a place to live. That's going to solve it all. And so there's a program called Housing First. Not a bad idea. Give them a house. Get them off the streets. Except there are a whole lot more issues that go into people's lives than just a house. And all we have to do is look at historical uh, reasoning why that has not worked by looking at some of the big project areas in St. Louis and Pruitt-Igoe. Billions of dollars spent in high-rise Apartments became a ghetto war zone, almost bankrupt St. Louis back in the 60s and 70s. And where is it today? It's rubble. It's down. Same thing happened in Kansas City in the Wayne Minor area. Tried the same things here in Topeka. There is a need for public housing, but that is not the solution. And so attempting to to solve this by just addressing the physical needs was way short. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the scripture says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture identifies that we're three parts. We're body, that relates to the physical environment. Soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, or our personality. 
and our spirit that which relates to God. All that the United States government has really been trying to do with these trillions of dollars is to address the physical up here. Just give people what they need today. Just feed them today. Just give them a place to live today, and we're going to solve the problem. 10.5 million more people impoverished today than they were in 1964. What about what the Scripture says about our mind, our will, our emotions, and that part relates to God, our spirit? Not that government has been totally void of any, all of those things, but the primary, the easiest thing to do, if somebody says, I'm hungry today, just give them something to eat. Just give them something to eat. And then the problem is over. Well, they're going to be back tomorrow. And they're going to be back the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Do we do some of that at the rescue mission? Yes, we do. We have to feed people who are hungry. But God has directed us to address these other areas of the person's life. What about at home? That was on the national level. Uh, Kansas has recorded some of the highest numbers of homeless uh, that we've ever seen uh, in, uh, in our state's history. Topeka Rescue Mission has been involved in this fight or this war since 1953 or 61 years. Uh, I've, like I said, I've been around for almost 30 of those years, and I've seen phenomenal changes of what's occurred in these last uh, 30 years or 28 years in my regard at the mission. Uh, Ken did mention things have changed a little bit. Uh, this building up here at the top, that's our main shelter, was built in 1991, sheltering men, women, and families in a kitchen dining room and all that kind of stuff. Now it's just men. Over here in uh, the year 2000, we built the Hope Center for Women and Families because back in the late 90s, we saw this explosion across the nation of the largest growing number of homeless being children. And that has not changed in the last 14 years. That still occurs. Uh, we added on distribution centers to meet the needs in the community and the thrift store. And basically the footprint of what we have today over North Topeka is this is the Kansas River. This is Kansas Avenue Bridge along here. Our main shelter is here. Our Hope Center for Women and Families is here. But recently we've acquired property here, here, and here. And we have property up the street here with our distribution services over here. I'm going to talk about in a moment. The problems that we face, just like the nation has, is we're out of space. For five years now, the rescue mission has not had enough space. We basically have space for men and women and children that would constitute approximately 286 beds. But sometimes we have 325 people staying with us, plus people who are unsheltered outdoors. So the city has said, go ahead and put cots on the floor for now. We'll give you a year's variance to do that. We had to go back to them and get another year, and then another year, and another year, and we knew that this wasn't going away. And so we decided that we needed to do something instead of having people out in common areas. We don't want to turn anybody away at the door, but nationally, statewide, and locally, our homeless problem continues to grow. About three and a half years ago, we started Operation Street Reach to reach out to people who were outdoors. We had never done that before, but we began to become aware that there are people that we can't even get in the mission, and so let's take services to them and see what we can do out there. That's a bad picture, but that's some of the things that we run into. Severe frostbite. Man lost his feet. A uh, lot of physical illness, substance abuse, drug addiction, hopelessness. Uh, beyond recognition right here in our community. Operation Street Reach works with law enforcement, mental health services, church volunteers to go out there to connect with people to try to bring them into the rescue mission in all kinds of weather. And these guys are phenomenal. They're out there fighting ticks and blizzards, 24-7 uh, in some situations, trying to reach out to people. It's estimated a hardcore, outdoor, unsheltered homeless individual who does not really want your help. When you approach them, it takes an average of 70 contacts to reach them, 
to be able to get them to want to receive that help. And I can tell you story after story. Uh, there, are, uh, there are female, male children living in cars right here in this community. This individual had been living in this car for seven years. Seven years. We found him. We invited him into the rescue mission. He's got, he gave us permission to tell a story and, and use these pictures. Uh, but he, uh, he came into the mission, had not been in the mission before. We put him in a dormitory with some other men. In the middle of the night, he gets up, got disoriented where he was, needed to use the bathroom. We didn't tell him we had bathrooms. He'd been outdoors for a long time. So you read the rest of the story there. That really was not a pleasant experience for the other guys. And so they were very angry at him. We talked to him. The next night, he has a seizure. He ends up in the emergency room of the hospital, and we went to visit him in the hospital the next day, and he was gone. Where did he go? We went back out to his camp here and found him and said, how come you came back out to your camp? And he said, because of that fight I got in at the rescue mission. We said, what fight? He said, well, I ended up in the hospital, didn't I? He said, yes. Well, I must have gotten in a fight. No, you didn't get in a fight. What happened to me? You had a seizure. You want to come back to the mission? Sure, come on back. We told him where the restroom was, but he forgot. Next night he gets up, does the same thing. He decided that this was not the best place for him. And so we are continuing to take ministry, food, shelter, and clothes to a very disabled man who has brain lesions, has been in and out of the hospital, in jail, and very misunderstood, and still today, seven years, almost eight years now later, trying to get him the kind of services to get him out of that situation, and they do not exist, except for what we're doing, reaching him where he is. John Johnson is executive director of the Topeka Housing Authority. He's a Harvard educator or Stanford educated guy, one of the smartest guys that I know, worked in poverty programs for the last 40, 50 years. He said, we spent the last 40 years professionalizing the social service network and the assistance provided poor people. With zip to show for these efforts, efforts other than more poor people, clearly we need to try something different. This is a guy who is working from the secular end of things, right in the middle of it, worked in the nation's capital, worked with our congressional officials, and now is in charge of sheltering over 4,000 people in public housing programs today, and says we need to do it differently than we're doing it today. Some people come along and says, we just need to end poverty now. They're tired of it. They're, they're, they're fed up. 50 years, it hasn't worked. And so what they're doing is they're trying to find somebody who will get a hold of this and solve it. They want to blame somebody. And so they protest and they write letters and they do all kinds of interesting things. Say, in poverty now. Okay, haven't been able to do it for the last 50 years, longest war in the history of the United States, so let's just end it like that. I switch gears here to talk about a guy named Dave Simmons. Uh, met him here a number of years ago. Some of you uh, that are football fanatics uh, will know that name. He was a linebacker uh, that played uh, with the Detroit Lions or the New Orleans Saints uh, at a particular time in his career. He said one of the best days of his life is when he was traded to the Dallas Cowboys. He uh, created something called Dad the Family Shepherd Ministry. Some of you guys may have been a part of that years ago. I got a chance to know Dave a little bit, and he said one of the one of the best things that ever happened to him was when he was traded because he said when we were playing for the Saints, we would come in the locker room at halftime and we'd be losing and the coaching staff would cuss and yell and scream and fuss and tell us what horrible football players were. And then they'd say, now go out there and win the game. <laughs> and what would we do? We'd go out and lose the game. He said, when I got to the Dallas Cowboys, there was a different kind of coaching style there. The guy's name was Tom Landry. Some of you remember Tom Landry. He was a Christian. He wore that... Top hat, you know, that old hat that old guys wear. 
Some of you guys may be wearing one now. I've seen a couple guys that I know wearing one of those. Anyway, he's always in a coat and tie. He was always out on the football field in a coat and tie. He said when we would come into the locker room at halftime, instead of hearing fussing and cussing and screaming, we would see this. That was the what we call the X's and the O's. The X's and the O's. The O's are the bad guys, the X's are the good guys. In other words, their team's doing this to us. Here's what we need to do differently. Let's go out and do it differently. And he said we went out and we were able to win games. In his time with the NFL, he was able to see a couple of different Super Bowl experiences. And he said, you know, here's what we do in our churches. We come into church, I'm not saying this church, churches. We come into church and we hear what rotten sinners we are, only if they're preaching from the Bible. And then we go away feeling bad. We go away feeling bad because we know we're rotten sinners. We come back next Sunday, we hear what rotten sinners we are again. And we're saved by grace, and then we go out, and we keep coming back, and we get very, very desensitized with that message. That we're bad people, and there's no hope, except for Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do until we die and go to heaven. And so there's an apathy that's occurred in the evangelical church. And so we begin to blame everybody. We begin to blame the government. We begin to blame the church. Because our society is declining rapidly. Rapidly. In its moral foundation, in its safety issues, in the way that we address things. We're broke as a nation. And I, the list goes on and on, you very well know about it. He said, but God's got a plan. God has a plan to be able to give us the tools. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're saved by grace and Jesus, because of Jesus Christ. But he has a plan on how we can take the good news of Jesus Christ out into the world today. And he said the same thing on a city level. Here a number of years ago, I took that same Dave Simmons model and I took the city of Topeka. As you well know, uh, a lot of finger pointing goes on in this town. And I said to the leadership of our city, we want to address crime issues. In the year 2000, we were on equal footing with Los Angeles per capita being one of the most dangerous, violent places in the United States of America. Wasn't a coincidence that during that time that our city council and mayor weren't getting along and they were having so much trouble that they had to go to a psychotherapist to learn how to get along to have a city council meeting. It's true. It made national news. There were universities and political science studying Topeka, Kansas on what's wrong here. That was going on uh, in a a growing, growing manner. We started the city of character uh, back in those days. And we began to see some progress that was happening. People beginning to talk together. Then we found in the year 2007 that our crime rate was still up so high. And we said, okay, city, city leaders, can you jump on board with maybe we can become the safest capital city in America? Can we shoot for that? We're going to have to stop pointing fingers and trying to find fault with other people and trying to say somebody's got to solve this and all come together. It wasn't rocket science, but this year, seven and a half years later, we have some of the lowest crime numbers that we've had on recorded history in Topeka, Kansas because leadership was working together, we were working together. That's simply a secular model. What can we do in the church when we come around instead of saying it's the government's fault, or it's the church's fault, or it's somebody else's fault, somebody's got to fix it now, to come together with a plan that God wants us to walk out. A natural problem is going to require a supernatural solution. Okay, 2011. Topeka Rescue Mission, Board of Directors, along with myself, got serious before God. We got overcrowded situation. Poverty's on a roll here in our community. Homelessness is out of control. There were up to 80-some street people at any given time outdoors. We didn't have enough services to connect them to. God, what do you want us to do differently? Show us what your plan is. 
He gave us the plan. Topeka Rescue Missions, three objectives to reduce hum homelessness, hunger, poverty, and improve community health. I'm going to take you through this. It's complicated, but yet it's not. It's one of those things that the Lord has said do, and we're saying, God, it's impossible for us to do. But he's shown us time and time again that he's a God of impossibilities, and he will hand us stuff that is so outside of our comfort zone that we will want to run and flee. And that's what we really have been struggling with, but at the same time, we have the confidence that God has said, go and do. You go and feed them. So with those three objectives, our foundation is, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. We know that 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, love never fails. If we get into programs and just trying to make something happen and just, just try to white knuckle this thing and we don't follow those first two commandments, we're missing the boat. We'll never get there. In a church, in our family, in our community, God has clearly called us to love Him first. Until we get that going right personally with Him and we have a love relationship with Him, we're just going to be futile in what we do. And then He said, go out and love your neighbor. So that's the foundation by which we go with. We're addressing all of the person that God created, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Been doing that for a long time, but ranking it up a notch. So, first objective that we have to do, unless we turn people away, is expand shelter capacity and equip our guests for successful reintegration into the community. I'm going to walk you through this. You've heard something about it. There are four phases of this. The first one is the Children's Palace and Youth Center. Why are we focusing on kids? We're situated with our Hope Center for Families right now. Eventually, there'll be a more shelter here. But over here is property for a two-phase children's expansion. What is it about the kids that we need to do that we're not doing today? We're sheltering them. We're trying to love them. But God said in the plan that he gave us, we want you to pour Jesus Christ into those kids independent of what their moms and dads are doing with their lives. We want you to help them to understand how special they are, how important they are, in this facility down here. Not separating them from the family, but having a place for them to go to learn about Christ. One of our staff came along one day and said, we need to call this the children's palace. If you're going to call it a palace, you better make it look like one. And so, the front end of this thing is the preschool piece of this, and it's going to look like a castle. It, uh, I was very concerned about how that's going to cost. I called a friend of mine who's from Topeka. He's doing quite well now. Told him about it. He paid for it. And so... Uh, don't worry. Yes, it's flamboyant, but it's paid for. We want these kids, we want these kids who have come from broken homes and hopelessness, told you're a homeless kid, that you're no good. Their parents are so depressed and so discouraged. We want them to be able to understand that they're royalty before God. We want them, when they come into that building, we want them to know that God loves them and has a plan for them. And so that's what they're going to see when they first come into that building, to be able to understand that Jesus Christ has a plan for their lives. We may only get one day to plant that seed. We may only get a week to plant that seed. We may be able to plant that seed for months. We don't know, but we're just being obedient. We have seen when Christ comes into a child's life, when Christ comes into a child's life at the mission, it transfers back to the family. And we're very excited about being able to be a part of that. These are just some different views, different faces of our kids. This is a cutaway. This first phase is the pre-K, up to kindergarten age. Second part is the shelter expansion. It's big. By the way, this is a $3 million project. This is a $5.5 million project. 
to be able to address this increase of people coming off the streets, uh, coming into the shelter. Our shelters are here now. This is going to be over here on the other side of the Kansas Avenue Bridge. To be able to take care of uh, this, this is just a few cutaways of the New Life Center. It will have space for families on the front end, uh, single men on the back end, and then a long-term program for men on the back. It's about a 37,000-square-foot facility. That's big. That's big. 240 additional beds we will have in the shelter. This will be more like the emergency room in the hospital. When people come on off the streets, people come to us, over 2,000 people stay with us a year. This will help us to open up to be able to not have to have those cots on the floor. This is phase two. To be able to reach out in this way, cutouts. And these uh, drawings are on the back table if you want to see more about that. Phase three is about a million dollars, taking the existing shelter of the rescue mission and turning it into the Empowerment and Transformation Center. Empowerment are tools that people need to be successful in life. And the transformation comes with a relationship with Christ and a relationship with others, renovating our kitchen to make it bigger because it's not big enough now to be able to feed these additional tens of thousands of people that are coming to us on a daily basis, or not a daily basis, but an annual basis to be able to eat. Training, equipping people to move out into the community. That's there. That's shelter now. Shelter will move here. Shelter will remain here. This will be the Empowerment and Transformation Center, the Children's Palace down here. Taking the existing building that many of you have been to before, still will be a place where people eat, but we'll also have education involved in it. The new shelter back over here on the other side of the bridge. This is a cutaway of it. Won't spend any time on that, but all the old dormitories will become education rooms, an expanded clinic, uh, that uh, some doctors and nurses are already uh, designing for us now. Our agencies coming in for education purposes, Washburn University training and so forth. Final phase is the Children's Palace and Youth Center. This is for the kids after school. Uh, we have a wonderful relationship with our school districts now with our kids coming. Actually have teachers come in. Most of them are believers to help our kids get ready to go into the classroom uh, every day. We've got a small room to put them in now. And eventually down here, uh, when the Children's Palace is done, when the new shelter is done, when the Empowerment and Transformation Center is done, then we'll finish off over here with the, uh, behind the uh, children's pre-K area to add this area right here for after-school activities for our kids to pour Christ into the school-age kids. There's a lot there. So four phases in the expansion. People have said, what's it going to cost? It's $12 million. That's one of those things. God says, go do. We don't take government funds. We don't borrow money. And so he said, go and do it. Well, one of the exciting things happened is we were able to collect a million dollars prior to June the 6th when we announced this this year that we were going to do this. Collect a million dollars. That was pretty awesome to see a million dollars come in. So that took it down to 11. A week and a half, <laughs> yeah, a week and a half before June the 6th, a lady comes to see me. And she said, I'd like to bless you today. And I said, that's good. She said... God told me to give you $1 million. I've never seen a million dollars before. I said, why? God told me. I said, what do you want your name on? <laughs> she said, nothing. God told me to bring you a million dollars. I don't want my name mentioned. That knocked it down another million. We were rejoicing, saying, Lord. On the way out the door, she said, maybe somebody else will do that. A few days later, another lady walked in. She said, I want to help, but I don't want my name on anything. I want to give you a million dollars. So on June the 6th, 
unknown to what we were going to be able to announce other than a million dollars came in, our price went down to nine quickly. Is God in this? <laughs> Does God do amazing things? All we have been doing is seeking his face, saying, God, we can't do this. He's told us, yes, you're going to do this. God, it's impossible for us to do this. You're going to do this, and here's how you're going to do it. And it's only up to us to say yes, and God bring in the supply. So needless to say, we're pretty excited. We've created a program called Hope for Tomorrow to be able to take down the next $9 million uh, as we go. We're going to be building in phases. The Children's Center will start uh, basic uh, uh, construction in August, and uh, this uh, New Life Center demolition will start here in just a few days. We also have what's called Hope for Today. There's some information on the back table about that. I'm not done yet. And so this is just me. There are three objectives. That was number one. I'm going to go fast. Number two is God said, we want you to develop a coordinated mentor program between the mission and the community. What's a mentor? A mentor is somebody who walks alongside someone, who suffers with someone, who walks with them for a year or two years or three years. One of the things that we've wanted to do as a nation is solve this with dollars, $15 trillion. Get them a house, get them something to eat, give them a monthly check, but the relationship piece has been absent. People need to have people walk alongside them. And so we've created a program of mentoring that will take the churches working with us to be able to have a mentor coach and the rescue mission participants to be able to move out into the community in teams of graduates that have mentor teams working with them. People empowered by the transforming work of Jesus Christ to walk along with mature believers that will be there to coach them, to help them, to encourage them, to break out the chalkboard, draw up the X's and the O's, and saying, yeah, you may have done this. This may have happened to you. This may be your background, but God's got a plan for you. Just like those little kids, this will be for the adults. And finally, the third is to develop strategies to strengthen the neighborhoods. Strengthen the neighborhoods. Why would a rescue mission want to do anything to strengthen the neighborhood? Because, because homelessness, poverty, hunger, and crime originate somewhere. It comes from somewhere. This didn't show up at the rescue mission door. It came from somewhere. So we began to analyze that and realizing that our neighborhoods in Topeka and our nation are under attack. We began to realize that poverty, hunger, homelessness, crime, lack of safe, affordable housing, substance abuse, mental health, physical health problems, lack of education and skills, lack of basic needs being met were all contributing factors to why we were beginning to see problems in our community. The community leaders came and says, why is the rescue mission so successful with many of its residents with similar challenges and struggles to those living in our unhealthy neighborhoods? Had to think about that. What are we doing besides the good news of Jesus Christ that makes it so that people feel generally pretty happy while they're at the rescue mission? And why do we have a 38% recidivism rate of people coming back? It's because of four pillars that we employ at the rescue mission for a healthy environment or a neighborhood of our folks. Number one is, has to be a safe place. If we're going to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ, they have to know that you are safe and that you have to feel safe too, that God has called you to do that. But also your physical environment needs to be safe. That's what Kent was talking, or Mike was talking about earlier, about what you're doing with the children here. It's got to be safe. It's got to be safe for everybody. And we've done that at the rescue mission. Safety breeds hope. Number two is it has to be a place of love, acceptance, and trust. Loving your neighbor, accepting them right where they are, developing a trust relationship. And if you're able to do that, 
then you began to have the opportunity to mentor them and to coach them and to walk alongside them. Number three is, so many of our folks come to us with no purpose in life. They're in survival mode. They've given up. It's over. They don't plan much of anything because they don't have a reason to plan it. But if there is safety, if there is love, acceptance, and trust in a relationship with a believer, they can begin to understand that God has a purpose for their life. And when they're around other people that are walking in purpose of their life and they're having a sense of community, that's what makes them a healthy community at the rescue mission. The problem is when they leave the mission, they go into unhealthy places, unsafe places, places where there's not love in our community. And we begin to try to diagnose how can we take this out here into our city? Some of you may have seen the poverty status map of the Topeka uh, City uh, back in 2011, the latest map that they have. The blue is what's called a healthy patient. The light blue is outpatient. The pink is at risk and the red is intensive care. When I looked at this the first time, I said, wow, that's a pretty good picture. Topeka, Kansas, from an economic level, about half of our people are doing pretty good. But the other half is not. So we really have a divided community in regards to community health from an economic level. That's good information to know. Did you know that 78% of the children who attend Topeka Public Schools are eligible for free or reduced lunches? 78% are eligible for free or reduced lunches from a federal poverty standpoint? That indicates something that the majority, way majority of our kids are struggling in their homes. I could tell you story after story about that. We began to look at the neighborhoods and we began to say, what are some of the common denominators with community safety and other areas of health and where's some of the worst areas? And we found out that this area right here was our most problematic area. We call it High Crest West, 7,000 residents. Not much up in that neighborhood other than a school building. The highest number of children in need of care in Shawnee County there. The highest number of infant mortality death rates in the state of Kansas reside there. Second highest number of gang members reside there. A forgotten part of our community. So, the Lord said, go respond. Go do something. When our back is against a wall, God has a special way of taking care of things. He called us to go into here. How are we going to do this? We don't have any resources at all, but we know that a lot of homelessness is being generated here and here and here and here. But God said, go. This is a map of somebody else who had their back against the wall. This is called the Red Sea here. There was a group of people, about a million plus, that were on the edge of the Red Sea one day, and there was a group of people coming out of Egypt that wanted to hurt them. It was Moses and his people who God said, go into the promised land. And they had just seen ten plagues, and they had just seen some amazing things happen, but Pharaoh wasn't done yet. And so he pursues them. He came after them. And he began to try to kill them. And they were nervous and they were scared. And God said this, when our back is against a wall in Exodus 14, 13 through 15, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Some incredible principles there. I believe that God is calling the churches in Topeka, Kansas, as well as this nation, to partner with our city, with our community, to get involved, to take the good news of Jesus Christ. If you haven't seen anything yet, uh, and you haven't watched the news, you will know that our governments today, across this country, whether they be local, state, or national, 
are finally waking up and saying, this doesn't work. This war on poverty hasn't worked. We're losing the ground. And they're looking for people once again to step up to the plate. Our back is up against the wall. Moses obeyed, and the people walked across. The principles there is God is saying, don't be afraid. Trust me for provision. Stand firm in your faith unwavering. Be still, quiet submission to his timetable, and be ready to move forward. Don't just talk about it. Don't just pray about it. Those are good. Those are upfront things. Don't just analyze it, but be ready when he says to move forward. He is calling us out of our comfort zones. He's calling us to those impossible situations like the disciples were in when he said, go and feed these people. This is all we got, God. He says, I know. Give it to me. And then he gives it right back to us. My question for you today is, you, are you at that place in your life where God is talking to you and he's saying, I want you to do something with your life that I've called you to do. I want you to be a part of something that I am doing in a very, very amazing way that there's no way that anybody has a solution to it. Are you willing to jump into the war on poverty now, 50 years later, and be a part of something that God wants to do a half a century later? God said, go in. Go in where? Go in like the Israelites did into this neighborhood and start right here to address this community in a place called Avondale East Elementary School. That's about all that's up there with 7,000 people. 501 shut it down. We said, we'll take it. So we created what was called the Neighborhood Empowerment and Transformation, NetReach, reaching the community with the good news of Jesus Christ by giving them tools to empower them and seeing transformation occur in their lives. We've partnered, it's a partner with the Rescue Mission, NetReach, Community Resources Council, and Topeka Public Schools, now called the Avondale East Community Empowerment and Transformation Center, or the Net Center. It's a place for believers to come, to be able to work with us, to reach the neighbors. How are we doing that? through community meals, through reading programs with the kids, through three-on-three basketball, through something called Doxazo Camp, some of you are familiar with. Incredible results are occurring as we're reaching out. What we're finding in the neighborhood, and this is, this is graphic, what I'm going to show you here in a minute, is some of the worst poverty that any of our officials have seen in a very long time. A mom with three kids, 15-year-old, had not been in school for five years. How'd she slip off the radar? Learning disability. We got in there. They called it the stinky house. You couldn't get very close to it because the odor was emulating out from the house. They were heating with propane bottles. This was last winter. A police officer walked in there and found that this was the living conditions of three kids. Two small children, a very ill grandmother uh, on oxygen, and a very mentally ill mother that hadn't been out of the house for two years. The 15-year-old was the one that we were making contact with. They would not let us in the house but we knew the odor was bad. We couldn't find the kids. We knew there were two in there. Finally, we were able to get a police officer to go in there. She called me late on a Friday night, mad. She said, they're coming to the mission. I've just taken them out of the house. They got nowhere to go. It's about two below zero. Will you take them in? I said, sure, check for the headlights and everything else, but bring them in. She said, Barry, I've seen bad houses before, but I went out in the yard and threw up because this was so bad. This family lived in this kind of situation, sleeping here. You cannot see the cockroaches moving here. You cannot see the 19 cats that were in there urinating and feces all over the floor because mentally ill mom didn't want them to go outside. She might lose one. And the toys the kids had to play were this pink pig and another little bear underneath laying on the floor. Right here in our town. 
This is not an exception. This is how homelessness is born and why crime is born and why we see what we see. Here, not Haiti, although that's an important place to go. Not Africa, although that's an important place to go. Not Chicago, although that's an important place to go. But Topeka, Kansas, right here, under our nose. The family came into the mission and has been with us for eight months. 15-year-old, hadn't been in school for five years, is now in school. Summer program's getting caught up. The two smaller children are healthy now. Mom is getting treatment for her mental illness. And grandmother, we probably saved her life. Still on oxygen, but alive. We must bring resources, body, soul, and spirit. We need to involve not just the church, but a lot of entities. That's a, what's going on in Highcrest right now. It's a lot of entities over there. And I show this up here for you uh, war buffs. It's a strategic plan. This is the Pacific Theater in World War II. Tokyo is up here. Uh, that was the goal to stop them from destroying the world. But there were lots of little islands that were in between the United States coast and Tokyo that they had to go and occupy and do what they had to do there. This is not a quick fix. That's what we want. It won't happen. It has to be done with sacrifice. It has to be done with strategic plan that God gives us. And it has to be done locally as well as nationally to go from where we are today and take each one of those areas. We have plans today to do more than just Highcrest in our community to bring empowerment and transformation with the good news of Jesus Christ into this community. Three objectives and I'm done. To reduce homelessness, hunger, poverty, and improve community health. Number one is expand our shelter. We've got to do that. Get our folks equipped. That's the Children's Center, the Adult Education Center, more shelter. Number two is get with believers to develop a mentor program. We've got pilot programs going on right now. If God is calling you to walk alongside and suffer with someone, we want to hear from you. You'll need to go through training. You'll need to get background checked. And you'll need to be a very patient person to walk with people that you've maybe never walked with before. And number three is we need to go into the neighborhoods to develop those strategies. Is this impossible? Yep. In our own strength. The federal government hasn't been able to do it with $15 trillion. But God has said there's hope for tomorrow as well as hope for today because of who he is. And he said this to us. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Thank you. God bless you.